Hello and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Sunday, June 27th, 2021. And a good evening to you and everyone out there. I'm Greg from Philadelphia, your host for today's podcast. This evening, we're talking with Jonathan Etheridge, the Alliance Party's national chair. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. We're also joined by Dan Schaefer, our vaunted podcast producer. He's joining the conversation as well. Hello, Dan. Wanted podcast producer. Hello, Greg. So um, <laughs> what's the, uh, it's great to be here again. And uh, what's the topic for this evening? Today, we are talking about fascism in America. It's a pretty highly re- relevant topic. Um, now, when we think about fascism in America, I'll bet a lot of people don't think about fascism when they think about America. I mean, isn't fascism history by now? You know, didn't it die out with Mussolini and Hitler back in World War II? Not even close. Fascism is not just a historical artifact that you might read in history class. It is here today in America and many other countries abroad, uh, either as a dominant political ideology or a uh, rising political ideology. And we need to talk about it. Good. And, you know, uh, before we get started, I'd like to do a little bit of entomology because I always like to understand words. Um, So fascism as a word. Um, it really is, hasn't been with us for that long, was actually developed uh, or was actually uh, created by Benito Mussolini back in the early part of the 20th century. And he based the word on the symbol of the fasces, which is a Latin term for a group of rods or sticks that when fastened together in a bundle, they become extremely strong. An axe head often emerges from this bundle. And so the symbol of the fasces has been around since ancient Rome, and it survives today as a metaphor for power and authority. As a matter of fact, two opposing symbols of the fasces appear behind the podium within the U.S. House of Representatives. I'll bet you didn't know that. I did not realize that, but it's important to understand in the context of fascism. Fascism also uh, has a habit of appropriating historical historical symbols and the symbols and language of the groups that it's seeking to overtake. Regarding the definition of fascism, there is a lot of debate over the exact meaning, but for the purposes of today's discussion, we're going to look at fascism as an extreme right-wing political ideology that derives its, uh, its strength or its cohesiveness from a deep-rooted sense of nationalism, strict social hierarchy, a highly centralized system, rule of law and order, and an absolute subjugation to a single ruler, usually male. And nefarious leaders throughout history have used techniques of fascism as a playbook to gain complete and extensive control for themselves and their families. And this playbook includes the following strategies, Dan. Okay, the uh, first strategy is the promotion of a mythical and glorified past. They also use propaganda to convey simple but often fictional stories of righteousness righteousness to enhance that glorified past. And uh, also the promotion of a concept of a chosen people, us, and the invention of a decadent and corrupt enemy that seeks to destroy the state or them, us and them. And this uh, promotion of us, the in-group, being the true victims of them, even though them might portray themselves as victims. And the labeling of intellectuals as traitors, part of the them crowd. Likewise, the designation of the press as enemies of the people. And also the centralization of power and authority in order to fight them enemies 
using a highly visible demonstration of law and order. And finally, a belief that women are instruments of procreation in service to a patriarchal male-dominated traditional family unit. Uh, and there's also ultimately the portrayal of the singular leader of the nation as a father figure. Now, the elements of fascism and its playbook are highly visible in the United States, becoming more visible every day, which is what brings us to our discussion here tonight. So let's get started. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back to the show. We're always happy to hear you, to have you here at Alliance Party After Dark. Thank you for joining us today. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Greg and Dan. Well, let's, let's jump into it. Uh, the Alliance Party, it's a party of thoughtful people, people who are willing to listen to information, competing information, weigh the alternatives, and make you know conscious, conscientious decisions, modify our policies and beliefs as conditions change. I, and hopefully many people out there, this seems like a pretty good recipe for good governance, but it doesn't seem to play well when a fair number of people are tuning into messages of pessimism and tribalism and causing these uh, really deep-seated reactions on a tribal level rather than approaching a problem of, okay, how should we solve this to the best interest of the nation? It's lots of factionalism. And could it be that the insurrection on January 6th is an indication that we may have already gone beyond the point of no return on this? Are we locked into this fascist endgame? And if not, what can we do to convince folks to recognize this mar march toward fascism and get us back toward working together as a nation towards common goals? Yeah, I'd like to add to that. I, I think that January 6th will be recognized as one of the most important dates in our history because it lifted the veil of virtue from what was otherwise being presented as a pure form of patriotism into what it truly is, which is the American model of fascism. And I think you know the first step on the road to recovery is admitting that we have a problem. And so we need to address two myths that allow the danger to be dismissed. And the first is that you know, this is a new phenomenon that only rose and will certainly fall with Trump. Uh, and second, that, that what we're seeing here is not fascism because it isn't an exact copy of the models set by Mussolini and Hitler. You know, to start on the first myth, uh, you know, the United States has never been exempted from what fascism ultimately is, which is an anti-democratic and xenophobic movement. We've had our own homegrown fascists since the Native American Party of 1845, the Know Nothing Party of the 1850s, and there were several major derivatives here of the European fascist model in the 1930s that were openly pro-Mussolini or pro-Hitler. You know, we had the uh, defenders of the Christian faith and their militant Black Legion, who were primarily organized in, in Protestant evangelist communities, as well as some veteran-based organizations like the Khaki Shirts, you know, to name only a few of the more prominent examples. And, and while movements like these, to your point, you know, aren't they history, were marginalized after the horrors of the Nazi regime were revealed, it is important to note that American soil is indeed somewhere where fascist supporting ideologies and passions can take root. Uh, the second myth to me is even more insidious as it allows people to assume that, you know, it can't happen here because this is America and we're nothing like Italy or Germany. You know, we're exceptional and unique. Um, but the fact of the matter is our greatest danger would have historically and will always come from movements that are functionally fascist 
but employ authentically American themes, symbols, and language. You know, one of the leading histories of fascism is Robert Paxton's Anatomy of Fascism, which I highly recommend. And in that, you know, he pointed out that the language and symbols of an American fascism would have little to do with the original European models because they may be as, or they must be as familiar and reassuring to loyal Americans as the language and symbols of the originals were familiar and reassuring to many Italians and Germans. You know, American fascism carries its own flags. Uh, paradoxically, both the stars and stripes and the stars and bars of the Confederacy in many cases, uh, rather than the swastika. And it, it doesn't raise its hand in the Nazi salute, but instead places its hand over its heart and recites the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and as Paxton warned, you know, these symbols contain no whiff of fascism in themselves, but an American fascism would transform them into obligatory litmus tests for detecting the internal enemy. And so, you know, we need to acknowledge these, teacher, these two truths to avoid the end result desired by American fascism, which has already progressed from creating a movement to rooting itself in the political system and now seeks to seize power and create an American state dominated by one party where government acts to protect only the chosen few and serves the ideology of fascism. And that, that's interesting in that, I mean, we've, we've come so close, whether people realize it or not. With the end of the Trump administration, I mean, it was almost not the end. That wasn't exactly a blowout election. Uh, even now, the Republican Party supports a lot of if not fascist ideology, certainly the the effect of uh, of a prominence of fascism both in American culture and in American governments, and uh, we could see this with the resistance to the Voting Rights Act. There's they see considerable political advantage in maintaining a lot of the rules and systems, beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that would facilitate the rise and continued prominence of fascism in the U.S. How do we deal with that? <laughs> that's big. That's a big one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they're fascist. They play what we call what, you know, what a coach of mine called full court, you know, full court press. I mean, they, they're, they're not just waging a political war. I mean, it's, it's social attacks, it's cultural attacks, it's psychological attacks. Um, and it's going to come at every level and be unceasing. So it really requires a whole of society rejection uh, of the conditions, you know, poverty, uh, the sense of victimhood on the part of, of a people, um, you know, and, and these mythologies that create this, this toxic, hateful public discourse. You know, all of these things, um, you know, contribute to creating a condition where fascism can thrive and we see it thrive. I just kind of forgot to take myself off of mute here, but um, yeah, I, I find that interesting. And you brought up the concept of the glorified past and also victimhood. And I see the two of them being related because in many cases we see, um, you know, make America great again. It, it sort of harkens back to a glorified past that never actually existed. And, and the, the, the fascist elements in this country don't want to teach the truth about the past. I mean, this becomes, you know, it, it uh, transitions into like, you know, discussions about critical race theory. 
But you could also put forth the argument that, hey, we had this glorified past and now that's gone because of, you know, liberalism or progressivism in this country has ruined it, has, has, has somehow or another um, taken this glorified past and turned it and twisted it into this distorted sense of, you know, America today. And people believe in that in mass, right? They, they believe in this, in this common vision of the past. And many of them have lived through it and, and didn't know it was so glorious at the time. But now that we're being told it's glorious, it is glorious. And, and who do we blame for it not being glorious anymore? So it, 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 it becomes a victimization sort of thing, right? We can, we can portray ourselves as victims now. Things were so great until other people came into the, into the country and ruined it. And now, you know, now the ruling class are now the victims. And that actually helps gather more steam for the argument to move even further into fascist type of uh, mindset. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, I think the recent battles over critical race theory and, you know, the, the spat this week between military leadership and Tucker Carlson on the wokeness of the military, uh, et cetera, are they're symptoms of the battle for the fascist movement to perpetuate and proselytize its mythology. And, and that mythology requires the belief that one is part of the chosen group of people who have the right to dominate others because of their past success, you know, within this Darwinian struggle of society, the zero sum game that they see, um, and, and that the chosen group is now, is now a victim and it has a duty to protect its history, its culture, its relevancy, and its continued domination. And so, you know, fascism is really the political organization created to combat the idea that this chosen community is declining or that it's been humiliated or victimized by modern society with its, its alien influences, its class conflict and its liberalism or progressivism. Yeah. So, and, you know, this all boils down to really education in a sense, you know, fascism, you know, as we've mentioned, clings to this sense of past glory. And, um, and, and so the narrative now says, hey, you know, the, the, somehow the, the, the well got poisoned and made us all impure. And so it now works its way into education, as we talked about, and, and I'm actually seeing it in state legislations. Um, here in Missouri, as a matter of fact, but also um, in many other states, uh, Georgia, Texas, and so on, we're seeing legislators, state legislators, actively interfering in school curriculums, both directly through explicitly written laws with penalties of jail time, actually, and also indirectly through appropriations, you know, to ensure that the, all of this is to ensure that the, you know, less than glorious side of history is never taught. And, um, and, 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 and we talk about critical race theory, but um, this is essentially whitewashing our background. So our youth gets indoctrinated into this sense of righteousness and um, gets educated in that direction. So I look at the Alliance Party and I see, you know, we have a perspective on education. And if we could go into that a little bit insofar as fascism is concerned, but um, more importantly, perhaps, how do we teach history, social studies and literature without interference from politicians into the future? Uh, I, you know, I don't know if we can. I mean, honestly, I think a, a nature of education, because of the way our system is currently funded, you know, with uh, elected school boards, it's, it's inherently political. And, 
and we're a diverse society. I mean, we're a melting pot. So how how can we expect educators to teach about socially and politically charged topics without creating some discomfort? I think the answer is you can't. You know, educators like parents can play an outsized role in the formation of opinion, and that can't be avoided. So what we need to ensure is that we're educating our students on how to think. You know, we need to continue to encourage students to think for themselves. We need to encourage research and critical thinking. You know, we need to equip students with tools and training and how to rate the reliability of their sources of information, require them to read and respond to only fact-checked articles. Well, you know, we're asking them just, hey, consider what's the intent of the person who's conveying their opinion? And don't just apply that to the scholarly article that you read for school, but, you know, take that same framework, those same best practices that you've learned, and now apply them to the social media posts or the meme that just hit your inbox. Um, you know, I, I think that if we genuinely want our children to be informed, creative, and capable of solving problems, we need them to feel empowered, to question what they're told, to form rational evidence-based opinions. And so that encouragement to ask why and what if needs to be the primary concern of our education system. And, and quite frankly, it's the only way to protect our students from indoctrination, from being told what to think. The challenge there is the sources of people telling them what to think are not just their teachers, they're their elected officials, as you pointed out, they're their parents and their peers. And also the press. Um, and the press, absolutely. <laughs> it might seem obvious, but uh, the fascist tactic of calling the press the enemy of the people is its core to their strategy because they rely on, in a sense, the absence of truth. Because if you critically interrogated their romanticized past and a lot of their assumptions, many of them would not hold up to reasonable, rational people under scrutiny because it's a fictionalized pass. A lot of it either didn't happen or happened in a, a very different context or with very different effect than they would portray, a very different narrative than they would choose to portray. So the press often, very early on, becomes a target of fascist movements. Fascists don't like the truth. Um, and now with the new technology have with a more open, democratized internet, uh, where everyone can put out not just their own blog, but tweets, videos, uh, the entire multimedia empire you can run out of your house. It has enabled them to create their own press outlets, starting out very cheaply and eventually growing up to be quite large in some cases. And it kind of creates this entire alternate reality that has all the trappings of a traditional press but lacks the rigor and the credibility and in fact exists essentially as, as a propaganda outlet masquerading as news. So, I mean, Jonathan, if anything, what could our party help to do to clear up misinformation and to combat that trend? Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, that, that, <clears throat> that, taking away of credibility and legitimacy of, of the media and of the news is, is a key tactic in a fascist playbook. Um, but I think the, the fundamental problem is that our media system is deserving of some of the loss of credibility that it's, that it's been subject to lately. You know, 
I, I think that it's so hyper commercialized, um, you know, with only a, 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 maybe a dozen and a half or two dozen transnational conglomerates dominating 80% or more of our news, it, it's lost its credibility. It doesn't have the trust of the public. And so it will always be easy for fascists to combat facts with accusations of being fake news and then provide their own version of the truth within the medium available to us. And so I think that, you know, in, in broad terms, we need to limit the harm that an untrusted and, and perhaps even illegitimate media system can have on democracy because the media system is an undeniably essential political, social, economic, and cultural of our democracy. It's, it's our principal source and it should be our trusted source for political information, uh, access to public debate, and, and the key to having an informed, participatory, and self-governing citizenry, which is why it was enshrined in the First Amendment. You know, we need a system that provides that, that, that wide range of opinion, analysis, and debate on important issues. But equally important, it needs to be paired with the responsibility to promote public accountability of the powers that be. And so, you know, we, we need to um, build up a nonprofit, non-commercialized public media sector um, that, that has the legitimacy of the people and can offer them fact-based alternatives to, you know, the mass corporatized media that they've come to distrust. Um, you know, we do have a public media sector that already produces incredible value, but it's grossly underfunded and way too small to be effective at, at maintaining the public trust or have the reach necessary to make sure that every community has access to accurate, reliable opinions and analysis and news. You know, so, so we need a public broadcasting sector that includes not just national networks, but local stations, public access television, and community or radio stations. You know, as a system that's independent of the need for advertising revenue or grants from corporate or other private organizations, one that serves the entire population. Because right now, journalists, you know, are are, are subject to the constraints of the self-interest of, of either their corporate owners or the po politicians that that give them airtime and legitimacy. Um, and so in order to provide accurate, compelling journalism that's free of those interests, um, you know, we need to have that, that democratic public sphere. And so I, I think we need to correct the system in a way that, that allows us to restore legitimacy to it and redesign its method of incentives and financing and organization that focuses journalists and the media sector on the right behaviors that demonstrate the right values, which is to give us the, the unfiltered, un, unspun truth and, and hold our elected officials accountable. It might seem a little simplistic, but I've, I've heard several commentators, you know, prominent legitimate news anchors remark that one of the worst things that happened to the news business was allowing them to, was allowing stations to essentially sell advertising blocks during the newscast. And then that was the kind of the start of everything that, that slid into the current corporate journalism we have today. You know, yeah, absolutely. And even if you do look at public broadcasting systems, you know, less than 15% of their revenue is generated by government grants. So 
So even then they're still required to look for advertising revenue or grants from corporations or other, you know, nonprofit organizations be financially solvent. I don't know if you guys covered this yet or not, because I just got cut off there for a second, but um, it actually started out that way. Uh, my understanding is that, you know, when, when radio waves were initially discovered and, and the, the entire radio spectrum was set up, the FCC was started up. And one of the things that one of the rules they made was, hey, you know, the, the radio spectrum is a public resource. It belongs to everybody. So what we're going to do is allow you, you commercial stations to make money by broadcasting content. But we reserve, uh, we, we, we want you to reserve one hour a day to news, to public service, no commercials, no nothing. And my understanding is that took place, you know, back like in the, I believe it was the 1950s. I'm not clear on my history in that area. And the second thing that, that the FCC set up was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, which said that anytime you're using this public space for talking about political issues, you have to give fair um, perspectives on other, on other points of view. And the, the Fairness Doctrine was pretty much shot down under the Reagan administration in the 1980s. And even before that, long before that, the, uh, the, the sense that you could not um, you know, put commercials over the news for that one hour of, of public broadcast, um, that was shot down uh, almost immediately after it was set up. So it sounds like what you guys are talking about, it, it, or, or Jonathan, it sounds like what you're talking about is getting back to that, uh, to that uh, frame of mind where we do provide uh, fairness in our, in our broadcasts and we do provide uninterrupted, uh, no commercial sort of news, but that's just, just, like I say, it was set up that way at one point, but it, it just didn't last that long. I like the concept of it, but, uh, you know, I think we have a both sides of some problem in the media today that I'm always in the back of my mind, a little skeptical that a, a simple return to the fairness doctrine would, if anything, exacerbate like <laughs> the earth is round versus the flat earth theory. I don't think that deserves equal airtime. So there needs to be some sort of uh, some sort of sanity check on on this, or else we're just institutionalizing this issue of of treating science or objective reality is as equally valid as conspiracy theories or just random nonsense that just doesn't have any grounding in the physical world. Yeah, yeah, yeah I to, agree. I mean, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, I, I think I'm not sure about, you know, the details we're getting into the weeds here, but I would think that um, you would need to um, rely on a panel of, you know, so-called experts to make these decisions. Now, okay, who designates the experts and, you know, and, the, and can that be politicized? I agree that that is a, that is a problem, but I think in theory anyways, uh, something like that is, is, I think, Jonathan, that's kind of like what you're talking about, you know, the NPR, I think, and, and public radio stations, attempt to do that but then they get underfunded as well then yeah yeah i mean that's there's always that who will watch the watchers you know kind mm -hmm. of kind of challenge there and I, and I think greg is right about the the both side isms and even a restoral the fairness doctrine from what i understand and I'm, I'm i don't know that i'm educated enough to offer a detailed opinion on on the you know vagaries of of broadcasting rights um but I believe it only applied to a certain category of media, like those taking advantage of those free broadcasting rights. And mm -hmm. so 
private corporations, you know, those big transnational, you know, conglomerates that we talked about weren't really subject to the fairness doctrine anyways. And so, you know, they, they don't even, they, they build themselves as news publicly, but on paper, they're not held to the same standard as a news organization, you know, journalistic integrity, the fairness doctrine, even if it were reinstated would not apply to them as far as I understand it. And so that's where I really think we need to kind of look at some of the Canadian models or maybe in European models or, or Japan has a model, um, you know, where there's a, a fully funded, you know, um, public broadcast system dedicated to news and, and contemporary topics. That's not just an hour a day, but it's, it truly meets the needs of our 24 hour news cycle. And some of the more interesting proposals I've seen uh, to kind of say, you know, how do we control the content or how do we, you know, incentivize accurate and fair reporting versus, you know, and disincentivize, you know, terribly spun or biased reporting is to, to put the, the power in the hands of the people and, and, you know, say, Hey, every American, when they, you know, that's subject to pay taxes gets $150, you know, credit um, off their tax bill that they can then donate to one of these public broadcasting channels or systems um, in order to ensure that the ones that they think provide them the, the most accurate and compelling content stay on air. And, and so mm -hmm. take it to the people, let the people vote versus the corporate interest vote. Sounds good to me. Now we've become a highly polarized nation over the last 50 years or so. Um, I don't think that the recent trend towards fascism is necessarily led to the development of the polarization, but I do think it's undeniable that fascism will use, exploit, magnify polarization to help create the us versus them mentality and a, a climate of crisis that they can use to take advantage. In fact, I'll give a quick shout out to Innuendo Studios on YouTube for their excellent series on this. Um, but for the moment, let's set aside the fascism part and just ask, uh, Jonathan, what social elements are responsible for the polarization? Where do we assign the blame for that? And how can we help fix it? Not, you know, our society as a whole, really. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I learned in the military was this concept of, you know, it's, it's not my fault, but it's my problem. And so I, I don't like the idea of, of laying blame because I think there's a whole host of social and political contributors to our, our crisis of hyperpolarization. You know, some that manifest in our political systems and some that manifest socially and psychologically. So um, I think I would, I would focus on, on two elements. One, I could talk about what the Alliance Party is, is proposing as reforms to our political system um, that we think would, would address or combat uh, hyperpolarization. But then I also, you know, when we talk about blame, each of us individually contributes to what our society is and, and what our culture is and stands for and the values and norms and mores and folkways, you know, that, that we, we support. Um, and so I think really what we need to be doing is, is also talking about what every American can do in their own life daily to combat polarizations. And then what role do the parties have to adopt as well? So, you know, for example, on a political basis, the two-party system is obviously a major contributor because it turns every question, every policy or idea or challenge into this, this binary, conflicting, and contradictory argument where every issue is becoming less of a disagreement on policy 
and more on attack on moral beliefs or defensive moral beliefs. And so we've gone as a society from the other side being merely wrong to being immoral or malevolent. So, you know, we need reforms that eliminate barriers to democratic participation from voters, parties, and candidates. And, and I, I do feel like we cover that ground a lot. And I definitely encourage people to check out the Alliance Party website, www.theallianceparty.com for more detailed policy proposals on those political reforms, which are all intended to create a multi-partisan political environment. Um, something that, that personally I'm, I'm been looking into and a fan of, and again, I'm gonna preface this by saying this is my opinion and not something that's included in the policy posi position of the Alliance Party, but I, I would love to see broader adoption of um, citizen assemblies to debate issues in, and citizen referendums to decide policies. You know, this would allow us to downplay the fringes and highlight the median where research reveals that a majority of Americans do agree on broad strokes of policy on areas that are seen as hopelessly divisive because of those fringe elements, such as immigration and gun control. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's something that, uh, that I personally think is, is really interested in. And, and it's a large part, you know, of, of what has turned our political ecosystem into a destructive cycle of identity-based polarization. Um, but then I think, again, that, that individual kind of accountability or culpability that we all share, you know, the first thing we need to do is just take a look at ourselves and say, what are we doing to find a, a multiple perspectives or look at issues from different perspectives and reflect on what, what is truly the root of the difference and the disagreements holistically. I think, you know, that, that's one of the values of, of cross-pollination of cultures and continued exposure is really that, uh, that availability of diversity and perspectives. And so I think if we start intentionally seeking diversity and perspectives, we're going to get to a point where we will start taking perspectives on an issue rather than taking a side of an issue. And so I think we need to encourage people to talk and share their stories openly and try to foster empathy and, and, and ultimately, you know, reduce prejudice. Um, but I think we all also need to do our part to uh, elevate our public discourse and, and learn to kind of diffuse some of the toxic or hateful speech. You know, we need to, to avoid sharing memes or, or funny jokes that, that make light of horrible opinions or situations like, like murdering a rival group, you know, because this, this repeated, these numerous and almost casual communications about these things normalizes prejudice. Um, so I, th I think those are things that all Americans need to do. And then, the other thing we need to do is, is when it comes to voting is, is, you know, stop, stop voting for parties wholesale, <laughs> you know, down, down ballot or down ticket, start voting for policies, start voting for candidates, you know, take a look at it on an individual basis. That's how you're going to create a society that's not, or a political system that's not binary. And so something that the Alliance party is committed to, and I believe all parties should do is, is focus on a set of core values and behaviors as litmus tests rather than ideological purity as a litmus test. So, you know, we need to be open to disagreement within the party uh, and, and even amongst candidates. And we need to be able to call it our own. You know, so for example, we recognize that people within parties have a range of opinions on issues. 
And we need to allow our candidates and officials latitude to ensure that they're governing based on the will of their constituents and their personal beliefs and not just adhering to you know the party line or the ideological purity on all issues. And so even if, if, if we can agree on fundamental principles, we can allow issues to be recognized as complex as many, as many of them are. And that will require us to, like I said before, take a perspective rather than being right or wrong and requiring the taking of a side. But, but we are you know, getting back to the polarization part of it, though. I mean, that, that's sort of where we are at this point. I, I, I guess I'm trying to, in my mind, I, I, I totally understand, or at least I think I understand what you're saying, Jonathan, about this. Um, you know, we, we need basically to change our habits. And I think part of that is having discussions like this about fascism, because I, th I think the word fascism itself scares a lot of Americans. Um, you know, it says, oh, wait a minute, are we really going down that path? Um, but I guess it's, I, I can't see how we're going to get there from here. I think Greg's opening question was something on, on the lines of, you know, the, the Alliance party is, is a, a thoughtful party. It's, it's a conscious party. It's, it's everything that we think would, would create good governance, but here we are, we're extremely polarized. We're, we're, um, we're going down this path of fascism. We've already seen the January 6th insurrection and, um, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how to get to to this to this place where where you're referring to. Um, how do we transition there? And I get, I'm I'm coming up short on ideas, honestly. Well, no, Dan, I appreciate that you're saying that because I think honestly, I, I, I'm in the same boat when I think about the problem. I mean, I honestly I don't think there's a policy solution that's that's going to solve this polarization. I, you know, I, I think political reforms will help. It will create a multi-partisan political ecosystem, which will hopefully allow for diversity of opinion and negate prejudice. But, but ultimately, I mean, the answer in my mind for, for polarization comes down to individual behavior. You know, people allow themselves to fall into an echo chamber. They allow themselves to normalize prejudice. They've allowed themselves to simplify an issue and view someone who disagrees with them as, as you know, morally abhorrent or, or someone who hates America and hates them. I mean, you know, we, we have an example here. My, my, <laughs> my community in Williamson County, Tennessee is, is honestly, it's a national hotbed of, of critical race theory. We have some very active uh, parent groups that, that have, have been very vocal and, and, you know, been corresponding with the school board and we had an instance that made news last week where you know parent just said hey I'm, I'm really concerned I don't think teaching critical race theory is a bad thing and the member of the school board this elected official basically wrote back to her she wrote this long eight-page email and his email back to her was basically just I feel sad for you because you hate you hate white men you hate white boys and you hate Christians mm -hmm. so he already simplified that issue so you know sending the email is bad enough but the fact of the matter is at some point he allowed himself to think someone who disagrees with me hates me as a man hates me as a white man hates me as a christian and so uh, there is no government solution to this problem it's a social ill it's a social evil and and only you know enough people acting with the right behaviors and the right intent 
it's going to solve the problem. So that, that's why I, I said, you know, like I, I felt in what you did. I'm looking for, well, you know, what, what can we legislate? What can we force people to do? You know, can we block all the content on social media? No, they'll just spin up their own channels and stay in their echo chamber. So there's no answer to that environment except get people out of their echo chamber. Don't, don't, mm-hmm. don't let yourself opt into that in the first place. You know, put your ideas out there in the public, allow them to be debated, seek alternative perspectives, empathize with your neighbors or those who disagree with you. This is what's going to solve the problem. No, no, no authority can do that. It all comes down to individual choice and individual accountability. There's certainly political or institutional things we could do to encourage that. But I think Jonathan's right at the end of the day, it's it's got to be up to Americans to fix America. Like every one of us on our daily lives, making the right decisions and being the kind of people that we want to be. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have that, then no legislation, <laughs> no tax law or whatever is going to fix that. Yeah. We're, we're trying to basically fix a cultural issue. And that's, um, that's a, that's you know, the, the, the ship is already moving in one direction. That's a really big ship. And it's like, okay, now we have to find out, you know, how to steer this thing to move it in a different direction, because that's the way cultures work. It, it just, it, it can, it can gather steam and momentum as it moves along. But once it's moving in a direction, it's, um, it just takes a lot of conscious effort, I suppose. And uh, perhaps people who are willing to, extend themselves and get out and to do the, you know, the, the politicians who are, you know, willing to go to town hall meetings and take feedback from people and, um, and set a good example. And that's, I guess that's where, what I'm not seeing at this point is, is those, is, is, a, is a, enough charismatic people to get out there and influence the culture. But I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't think there is a, a policy that we can pass, a legislation we can pass that says, okay, you will no longer be, you know, um, be a jerk about this thing. You know, we're going to sit down, and we're going to listen to each other, we're going to, you know, talk things through. Um, the, the the fascism. One of the books I read, which was from Jason Stanley, how fascism works. He says it's a very easy pattern to fall into. It's very easy to think that uh, all your ills in the world are due to other people and it's it's difficult to take that responsibility for yourself and also set a good example for other people and that's where I, I sort of pin a lot of hope on on the alliance party because i the, the thing that that really attracts me to the alliance party is the fact that we are behaviors based in our in our approach we're not issues based we focus on on individual behavior and what we really need then are, are the charismatic people out there that can that can you know have influence on the culture and and start to move the culture into a better direction. But meanwhile, we're stuck with you know it's going to be hard. It, it's a hard thing to change. Culture is a hard thing to change. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, I, I agree, Dan. I mean, I want to add on a couple things you said. One, you're absolutely right about the the easy pattern to fall into to blame other people for your misfortunes or, you know, or your failures. Um, you know, my grandfather always told me that, it, you know, no one's the villain in their own story. Right. And so he always told me like, Hey, reflect on something. If a conversation didn't go the way you wanted to, you know, you got in a fight with your wife or you got angry at your kids or, you know, you had a confrontation, 
you know, somewhere, give yourself that time, that space at the end of the day to reflect on that and say, okay, what, what did I do to contribute to that? You know, was I my best version of myself in that conversation? Was I in the moment? Was I assigning an intent or a context that didn't exist to the situation when I reflect on it? Because no one's going to say, yeah, hey, I, you know, I, I, I picked the fight. I was in the wrong. They were in the right. And so it requires that introspection. And so I think that's that's part of this is, you know, if you can't ask yourself that question then find a, a peer or a coach or a mentor, you know, that you feel comfortable or a psychologist or a therapist or whatever that you feel comfortable talking to and kind of playing that back and someone who can challenge you to critically think about how that interaction went, and what you could have done differently. Mm-hmm. But do you think that having good examples um, would be key to that? Because, you know, it, it's, I, I just, you know, I read about John Kennedy, I, I, uh, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. Um, a lot of things I think he did was, was quite um, suboptimal, but he did have one good attribute. He was, he was someone that everybody looked up to. He was, you know, he, he, was, he was someone that, uh, you know, that said, you know, think not what your country can do for you, think what you can do for your country. And people believed it and, and was in it because it's true. You have to think about those things. Um, and and the, the, the beauty of, of Kennedy for all of his faults was that he was able to influence uh, a generation of people. And I, I guess, I guess I, it, people like that are necessary in history, don't you think? It, it's hard to get people to do this on their own unless they have one or more charismatic leaders to uh, to pattern themselves after. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I think people get you know excited about personalities. I mean, in our, I mean, our our politicians, our elected officials, are are almost like celebrities in a way, and I think even more so because you know, a part of our identity is the brands we choose to wear, you know, who we vote for, the people that are in office. And so I think, you know, ensuring the right people are in office is a big part of that. And that's why we talk about electing this new breed of public servant is finding people with the right motivation. They may not necessarily be the most charismatic person, but if they have legitimacy, if you trust that they're there, not because they want to just keep getting reelected, and, and spend 30 plus years in the Senate or, or the state house. Um, but, but they truly want to serve the community and help you. You're going to get motivated by that. Um, you know, that, that's, that's what really makes a difference. You know, there's this idea that our elected officials are supposed to be the best of us. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of hard to look at the current crop and say, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is, is this the best we can do and get excited about them? And so I think instead, we we settle you know we become apathetic to who's in office um and so i think though if if we we had a a group like the alliance party that's that's trying to run a better breed of public servant that's in it for for service to country and service to community i think people are going to see the difference they're going to feel the difference and they're going to realize that they can be excited about politics they can be excited about this candidate who's going to help ensure that their, you know, city, county, state, and and ultimately the federal government is a reflection of, of the best version of America that they want to see. And that's why we talk about owning our futures. If you're not going to be the candidate, 
find someone you think would be the candidate and support them, help them on that journey. Well, there's definitely something to thinking about how we can encourage better people to run because I agree it is a bit depressing to think that this is the best we can send. This, this is the best we can do as a country. I kind of feel that way pretty much every election for the past couple, certainly at the presidential level, like of all the potential leaders, this really, okay, I guess I'll vote for the least worst one. I would love to yeah. vote for a candidate I can get super excited about, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, we're not getting the best we could elect. We're getting the best money can buy and money can't buy virtue, right? Money can't buy integrity. Um, it can only buy results. And, and that's what people are buying. They're buying the candidate that's going to get them the results that they want. And the people who can raise the most capital, who can elect the most officials are not everyday Americans or special interests. And even in communities at the state level, when you talk about your state houses or, or your city councils and those types of things, I mean, uh, you look at Tennessee for an example, I mean, almost 85% of the people in either of the state assemblies are, are independently wealthy. They're business owners, they're doctors, they're lawyers. They're people who can afford to run for office because they're not dependent upon it to be their to be their income to put food on the table and so we've created a system that says hey you know we really have closed the door we have closed the options on people that that do have that right mentality that do have that calling to service because they say well i can follow my dream and i can want to serve my community but i'll starve or i'll go bankrupt and still potentially lose versus you know someone who has the means who who can put in the time and their own capital and, and they can run. And so we, we've essentially, we've, we've closed the doors to a vast majority of the population and we get the best of what can afford the, and has the luxury and privilege to run for office. Well, there you're, um, we had to, we talked earlier about uh, the government can't legislate um, people's behavior, but I, you hit upon something there, Jonathan, and we brought it up in previous podcasts as well it's kind of a pet peeve of mine too, is that, uh, yeah, sure. I would love to run for state governor, uh, for, for a state legislator position. Um, Missouri pays uh, about $35,000 a year and they, for that they expect about six months worth of work. So good luck finding, you know, a, a career on those other six months that can make up for, you know, whatever money you need. Now, if you're, if you're not making more than $35,000 a year, I guess that's okay. But to live in, in some of these uh, in, in the cities or in some of the urban areas, um, that's not much. Now there's other there's other states like California and, and, and New York that that pay a livable wage, um, so ordinary people can at least once they theoretically get the job for a legislator, they can support themselves and their family. Um, there's other states like New Hampshire. I think they pay like 200 bucks for like two years worth of work. I mean, total. So it, it, it might be Vermont. I get those two states always confused. But, but the idea is that you know that that you you can't at least at the local level or even at the state house level you can't really make a living off of it in many states that are out there, and so you end up with yeah the rich people, the the lawyers, the doctors, or whatever you know the people that can retire early. Um, so maybe that's uh, maybe that's um, um, something that can be legislated, some sort of policy that can be legislated that uh, would at least help us open the door for people, ordinary people, to get into government. 
Yeah, Dan, you know, and, and one of the things I'd like to talk about too, and kind of bring it back to um, the, the, the fascist, the, the, you know, the fascism in America context that we talked about is, you know, one of the essential aims of fascism is to grow from a fringe movement to exercising absolute political party, you know, and so um, while they ultimately seek a national single party control of government, it is far easier to achieve at the local and state level. And, and that's why political reform and political activism is so important. We already have a significant degree of single party control at the state level. So, you know, there, there's this concept of a, of a trifecta, which is, a, which is a government where a single political party holds control of a state's government. And according to, to Ballotpedia in, in 2021, you know, 38 out of 50 states have a trifecta. 23 Republican and 15 Democratic. And more alarmingly, in 24 of those 38 states, the majority party has a veto-proof majority in both legislative chambers. So that's 16 of those 23 Republican states and eight of those 15 Democratic states. So to, to put that into perspective, over 257 million Americans, or 78% of Americans, live under a trifecta of a single party control in their state. And so this is where the Alliance Party is different and why we're advocating for these types of reforms that we are. We've always wanted to be a nationally viable alternative that elects officials at every level of government, not just focuses on the presidency or federal offices because that single party control, whether it's the US House or Senate or the Missouri you know, House, House and Senate, single party control creates an ecosystem that is undemocratic at its core, and quite frankly, becomes an enabling condition of extremist ideologies like fascism. That's an excellent note to end on. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, serious topics, but uh, I hope that the audience can take away from this that there are in fact things that we can do, even not as a party, but you as a people uh, to help resist this trend and just generally improve the quality of life in America in a way that reflects American values. And that's something that, you know, is, is going to be reflected in the aggregate of the everyday choices of Americans all over the country. We've been talking with Jonathan Etheridge, the national party chair for the Alliance party. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us again at Alliance party after dark. We always enjoy talking with you. It was a pleasure to have you back. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please subs consider subscribing to this show so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify, wherever the podcasts live. <laughs> if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you would like to contact us at Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyrighted the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed in the show do not necessarily reflect those of the party. I'm Greg from Philly, your host for this evening's edition of the show. And on behalf of everyone here at Alliance Party and Alliance Party After Dark, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for the next show. Be safe, be aware, 
and please take care of yourself and those around you.